Yep, we are still in the pandemic, requiring remote schooling and remote work. How are those earphones for you and the kids working out? Looking to spoil yourself with some new headphones? Maybe replace or upgrade from what you're currently using? Well, Amazon is currently offering Apple AirPods with wireless charging case for $159, which is $40 off of the regular price of $199. So go ahead and click on the links in the podcast episode bio. You can also find us on Facebook at Do Good Feel Great or on the web at dgfgllc.com in the podcast section to take advantage of this special deal. DGFG is proud to present Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends, a podcast with a purpose, where real and raw conversations are had about real-world experiences happening in society on a daily basis. Real talk leading to a greater awareness and understanding in areas of social injustices and marginalized communities, entrepreneurship, gender equality and empowerment, politics, science, adversity, finding promise, positivity, and inspiration, and so much more. So get comfortable and get ready for great talks and many moments of laughter with Nikki. Hello, this is Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and friends. And again, my friend is my wife, Carrie Judge. And today we have a very, very special guest. We call her Retta King. Well, well, you call her Retta King, but I grew up calling her Miss Retta. Uh, she is super special to me because she is my mom's best friend. In fact, they always call each other sister and BFF and all kinds of cute stuff. Um, and so she's been sort of a, a pillar in my life. As a matter of fact, fun fact, when I first came out and I was so terrified, Loretta was the first one to get me a card and a little gift to congratulate me. And that always stuck with me. So... She's always been very special to me. And my story with Retta is when I thought I was dying of cancer, Retta came and met me at Starbucks and sat me down and talked me off the ledge and basically said, Nikki, don't worry till you got something to worry about. And then she winked at me. And that was when Retta and I fell in love. That was the moment. (laughs) That was the moment. Oh, man. No, we go way back to, I don't know, it was in high teens. I was early teens. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Loretta King is our guest. And uh, like I said, we're super excited to have her. And um, last week we had Portia Birch, which was a fascinating and educational episode all about racism and about um, her work in that and trying to make us better and educate us especially us white people who have no fucking clue (laughs) um so Retta I wanted to just invite you to introduce yourself and kind of talk about yourself uh your life your uh your history give us your resume on your life (laughs) Um, and try to try to how do we sum up Retta how do we sum her up It is so difficult and you truly don't have enough time, but I'm (laughs) going to work on it with you. (laughs) All right. My name is Loretta King. I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a California girl. I stayed there almost all of my life. Um, I've worked in a lot of different professions. I have been an activist and a real hard nose for most of my life, but I have a very calm spirit about most of it. Um, I worked in military. I spent 32 years there. I spent 14 years with the California Highway Patrol. I have met a lot of people and done a lot of things and came up with some really interesting opinions based on civil rights, um, rights and wrongs, 
and I have a real high moral compass about certain things. So um, I don't know where you want me to start, ladies. So go for it. You started it. That's a good place to start. <laughs> um, when we, uh, when I think of strong black women, I instantly think of my Retta. Um, and you have probably without even realizing have educated me through my, my young adulthood. Um, and I always think of you, um, during this month and I always think of you during, uh, the BLM movement. I think of you in terms of, you know, we talked last week about the insurrection and just the stark difference between, um, the Capitol police presence versus BLM riot or BLM pro protest uh, presence. And, um, so, you know, I think I want to start with, well, you know, I'd like to go back a little bit. Um, okay. I know you have been on the front lines of a lot of movements through your life and you've seen a lot that Nikki and I weren't even around, weren't even a twinkle in our daddy's eyes for. Uh, and I wanted to hear a little bit about your experiences back then, um, anything that you experienced back then and, um, some pivotal moments maybe through your fight for equality and, and through all the things that you've done. Cause it's, there's incredible what you've been involved in. Well, being from California, I didn't experience the racism of the South of the 1950s. I was born in the 1940s. So I have a pretty good inkling of what was going on but California had its own very special variety of that. Um, I'm from a family of activists. My mother, Lodi Cherry, was a true dyed-in-wool activist. She started with Dr. King. She went along with Cesar Chavez. Wow. Got them to kind of start enjoying the fruits of being able to fight together and to make change together. Um, the um, United Farm Workers Movement was a little slow to get on board and it wasn't until things got really bad that we were able to start that march and get some things done down in the um, Central Valleys of California. So we had that battle. We walked the streets of Watts for many, many years for equality. I was a member of the Black Panther Party in 1967, 68, and 69. Um, Los Angeles had an incident um, in June of 1969, I believe it was, where the Los Angeles SWAT team carried out its first SWAT activities in the country uh, on the Black Panther headquarters on 41st and Central. I think that was uh, December of 69. And I had just left the building the night before. And that was really kind of terrifying for me. I was 20 years old. Did you guys know uh, at all that they were coming? Was there any? Did no, you guys we have... didn't. no, we had no idea. What had happened um, a couple of days earlier was there had been an assassination of two members of the organization. And nobody could tell us what happened. And there was a lot of protesting and a lot of noise made. And then we just left. And the next morning, I guess about eight o'clock in the morning, they stormed the building. There were 12 people in the building. Uh, three of them were injured, three cops were injured. It was a give and take, but they got a chance to use some NATO equipment like helicopters and 
grenade launchers and things that they didn't have in their arsenal <laughs> before. So, you know, it was kind of like a, a training exercise, but we were, everybody came out of it okay. Uh, the Panthers were extremely misunderstood in the earlier parts of it in 1965 and 66. They actually developed the WIC program that women, infant, children now benefit from. It's a program that they started in Oakland, California, and able to hand out food and to make sure kids had a morning breakfast. And after a while, the state thought it was a good idea and picked up the idea. So it, it's, um, <laughs> it was an interesting time. Do you it think was a very interesting time. Do you think that with the Black Panthers, the misunderstanding was that, because, you know, I hear white people, they say the Black Panthers, they were, they, they were a racist group. Do you think yeah. that there's truth to that? Do you think that that's the yes. misunderstanding? Yeah. Okay. I don't think that that's a misunderstanding. I think that that's a very correct assumption. Um, racist because it was the only way that you could pull yourself out, separate yourself and show the inequities of what was going on. We couldn't very well stand next to the average white person and say, we're not being treated right. You had to separate yourself from that and be able to show the inequities of what was going on at the time. So yeah, I I think that being able to say racist, racist is sometimes just an identifier. Wow. That's crazy that you were part of all that. I mean, it's just, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like out of a movie, you know, to, to talk to somebody that was, that was on the front lines of that. It really is. It was, it was a very, um, it was a very turbulent period, but at the same time, it was a time of awakening for a lot of people. Um, the 1960s were, were just crazy like that. There were a lot of things that were changing. There was a lot of force change on people who didn't want it, black and white alike. Um, the changes that were made didn't sit comfortably with everyone. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, I mean, and, and I find that that has been actually the theme uh, with our last podcast as well is just the uncomfortability with change and also the uncomfortability with uh, white people and their participation or lack of participation or willingness to really see things as they as they were and as they are today. You know, let me at, at that point, let me um, share something with you. In May of 1967, um, the Black Panthers did something that nobody really seems to remember happened. A lot of people weren't born, but they went fully armed with sunglasses, leather jackets, and berets, fully armed to the steps of the California State Capitol. Wow. 25 gun-carrying Panthers. That was May the 2nd of 1962. I remember it. It wasn't too far from my birthday. And when they left, new gun legislation went in for the state of California. I bet. <laughs> now, my question is, how come that didn't happen when they started shooting up schools? <laughs> it's right. like, I don't, I, I have some real parts of that, you know, before then, it was legal to have your gun in the open, no problem. California was a whole different place. As soon as that happened, we had legislation on the books within 72 hours. Wow. <laughs> so Just wow. If you want a little, a little piece of a history lesson, that, that should give it to you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing and eye-opening. 
yeah, that's not a that's not something that's really remembered. Um, I I went back to that because there's a piece of of history that I always like to go back to. I've told you the story about the uh, member of the clan who was really the head of the Aryan nation. His name was Tom Metzger. In um, 1978, I met him in Fallbrook, California, after a rally. And I was a military journalist, and I stopped to have a cold drink because I was out near Camp Pendleton. And we stopped to just have a, a cold drink. And I was standing outside, and he happened to be sitting outside drinking a soda. And he told me who he was. I told him who I was, and we just started talking. And he told me some things, and he says, I can tell you this because nothing you can do about it. But he said that the, the white Aryan nation and the clans, they were all going in a different direction. That things had changed so much that they needed to educate their kids while still training them in the ways, get them educated, put them in high paying jobs, get them in high powered position, get them in the military, get them in politics and let them do their work from the inside. And that's something that I never ever forgot. And wow. only because he prefaced it by telling me that there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. It was a plan that I've seen work itself out beautifully. I'm, I'm just totally in awe with how that was put together and how effortlessly it went through without challenge. That's amazing. That's, uh, you know, it's funny that you say that because when you were talking about the, I, you've told me the story before, you were talking about the, mm -hmm. the gun laws changing. And that's yet another example of how um, quietly and how quickly laws and things change to benefit the white people and to keep the black people oppressed in such a blatant way uh, and through the, le through the legal system, through the, through the laws, through politics. Yes, once again, I'm telling you because there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> right, you know? sure. It's, and, and you know what? I thanked him for that because then I knew what to watch for. Right. And for the remainder of my military career and definitely into my law enforcement career, you couldn't take two steps without me jumping back at you. It was, I am not going to let one single thing go by unchallenged because I had already been put on notice that this was the way it was going to be. So it, it was really an education and an appreciation that I got from a person that we normally under normal circumstances wouldn't have never met. <laughs> yeah, you would have never crossed paths. No. <laughs> so when you were, Loretta, when you were talking about that, I was thinking, what was it like to be a young black woman in the military, in the U.S. military? Did you see that you were treated different there? And then and then we're going to cro cross over to you being in law enforcement and being a young well, black woman in law enforcement. A young black woman in the military was very interesting. When I came in, it was 1976. The military had been integrated only for eight years. They were getting ready. They were just getting used to having the men around. Now you have to put up with a, a chatty Cathy woman. 
um, and a black woman. Oh my gosh. And you're all, and you've always been very vocal. So I'm sure that this was fun. (laughs) It was, it was, um, an experience for us all to say the least. It was extremely difficult. Um, it was a physical challenge as well as a psychological challenge. You had to keep people physically off of you. You had to talk them down because they believed that no one would believe you if you blew the whistle on them. Um, I made sure that that was never the case. Um, Your jobs, your promotion opportunities, everything had limits. You could only go up so far. You can only go up so far. If you were verbal, you were not going to get really far. And we had to break a few ceilings on that too. I was very fortunate to have high level people that I worked for directly that always made sure I was partially protected until I reached a certain level and then they were gone and I was kind of on my own, but I did okay then. Um, As a journalist and a first sergeant and a few other high level positions within the military, I was able to have a little bit more of a voice than your average soldier or airman would have. The highway patrol was a different story. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I mean, you, I, we should go back to actually just really giving you props. I mean, you have like made your way through the military. You hopped into the law enforcement. Now, was that like a clean break with the military? And then you went into law enforcement? Actually, no, I stayed with the uh, Air Force Reserve uh, for another 13 years. In fact, um, I retired from the highway patrol before I retired from the military. I, I stayed with the reserves in order to continue. I am a dyed and wool patriot. I believe in this country. I believe in everything that it stands for. I believe that it has some quirks that we really need to work on. And we need some strong voices out there to be able to let people know when they strayed off the path. I'm a constitutionalist. I believe in the words of the Constitution, and I don't need to think that they need to be played around with or massaged in any way that you think would work for you. I just don't think that those are the right things to do, but it has nothing to do with any specific political party because every party who's been there has had some problems with staying true. So yeah, it, it wasn't a real big transition to go to the highway patrol. I stepped right into it. Um, not so much because they wanted me. It's because they had no choice. So did you have issues getting into the highway patrol? I did. There were, were several supervisors that um, would have much rather I not been hired. Wow. And And that was quite all right with me. I had a commander once again who told me to sit down and be quiet for a year (laughs) (laughs) and to do good hard work and get myself in a position where it wouldn't be that easy to get rid of me. Right. And he more or less mentored me into how to remain in my position and to be able to advance in my position. So I did have some help. Wow. Um, so, so we talked about you getting into the military. We talked about you getting into um, CHP and um, the tr- the how that was a little tricky, to say the least. Um, and so how about like you you leaving the highway patrol and what what um, how, how how was your um, send off? My send off was really interesting. Um, 
the my I retired along with your mom. <laughs> Her first <laughs> yeah. retirement from the highway patrol, we retired together. Yeah. It was very uneventful. Um, as a supervisor of the of one of the communication centers, I worked very hard to be very honest and very upfront and very fair. And I think that part of the relationship of uniform and non-uniform is that it's almost like being within a military environment. Um, I would never badmouth it in the sense that it provided me well and it gave me good experiences and I met wonderful people. And the only thing that I had to do in that job that I thought was the right thing to do was to make sure people did not work in a hostile work environment, that they were able to come to work and go home feeling like they did a good day's work without feeling the pressure that followed them home. Once your eight hours are over, it should be over and you shouldn't have to think about that until you come back in the next day. That was the only goal that I had with them. And I think that I carried it out in the best way humanly possible. Um, when I left, it's really funny, um, before we had this conversation, I was going through some papers and I went up on the shelf and I took down my retirement certificate from the state of California and it's not even signed. <laughs> what? It's not, it's not even signed. It's, God, it's all wonky lettered, and it's like, you know what, it, it's par for the course. I should keep it and display it just like that. But it was never even signed. Wow. And I was like, you know, that's really unfortunate for someone who gives their time to their state. Yeah. And to have that happen. That was very unfortunate. And, you know, I look at that as another tiny bubble. It's like that glass of champagne where you watch the bubbles rise to the top. Once they pop, they're gone. Yeah. You know, yeah. you just, you keep right on moving. But um, it was quite an experience. I don't think that um, minorities are fully accepted in any line of law enforcement. It, it's going to take a lot to crack that. Retta, I want to know, so I noticed that, you know, you went to the military and then you went into law enforcement. What do you think it mm -hmm. was about you that your calling was <laughs> to go into two very <laughs> predominantly <laughs> white male employments like 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 know, did you just right? sit back and think like this is this is what I want to do is just shatter ceilings in these two white male dominated fields it wasn't it wasn't intentional I think it was kind of like a Forrest Gump moment um you walk into things accidentally and you just find yourself there it's I'm looking for a job I applied for this one I got it it's it's as simple as that it wasn't anything that was thought out or but I'm from a family of activists. So seeking out jobs that are in service is not unusual for me. My entire life path has been in service. And whether it's been in a paid position or a volunteer position or pounding the, the pavement for something, it's, it's just who I am. So I don't think that there was any way that I could really get around that. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you find that and you were predominantly <laughs> Predominantly white male? Yeah. Yeah, go for it, really right? <laughs> I love it. I um I actually did read the two um articles, documents that you sent me that you wrote, um, the contentious relationship between blacks and law enforcement and understanding quote unquote this black problem. Um mm -hmm. and I was um 
especially this black problem was really insightful for me, but they both were. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about that. I wanted to talk to you about the relationship between blacks and law enforcement. As you know, you know, the BLM movement has been around for a while, but it's really showed its face, um, this, this past year, um, with the murder of George Floyd and so many others that, uh, Brianna Taylor, you know, that, that we know they were in your face we were all locked down. They were on the news that saw the videos. We heard the, the cries from the mothers, all the black mothers out there. Um, what do you, I don't even know how to start this question because it's such a heavy one. What, what's your take on it? I mean, I know that's such a broad question, but it is. how have you been, how, how have you taken it all in? Well, it's not a new situation. It's not something that is just happening to us in the last year. Even Trayvon Martin and being able to see what happened with him, just coming back from the store, you know, that was four years ago now, and it just seems like it's just been compounding since. The only difference between this and what's been happening all along is that there are video cameras. And the other thing that has happened is people feel quite comfortable and quite safe being able to do these things because there are no repercussions for it. There's no consequence. Stand your ground. Well, what happened to the man who stood his ground, who tried to protect his wife, who was being accosted in a parking lot? He was shot dead right in front of her. Now, nothing happened to the man who did the shooting, even though he was the one who perpetrated that. There's an unequal standard of justice. There always has been. How do I feel about it? I told your mom about the case of Emmett Till. If you ever have the opportunity, if you haven't, take a look at that. That happened in the 1960s, 1950s. Emmett Till was a 16-year-old who whistled at a white woman. What happened to him set this country ablaze. It's been going on all along. And the only thing is, is when you're regarded as almost less than human, then it becomes hunting season. And I think that that's something that people need to take into account. As a white person, you're saying this is all this injustice. I see it as a hunting license. Wow. I see it that it's okay to go out there and do that because this is a thing that people are comfortable with. They've been told this is okay and they show up in numbers to tell you that they are privileged to the point where this can happen. So yeah, it's... um. It's something that I've thought about for the last 60 years that I can think of right off the top. And the fact that it's the same argument that we were having 60 years ago when they were lynching people in Louisiana and in Alabama and in parts of Texas. And it hasn't changed. We're still having the same conversation that Marvin Gaye had with what's going on. Same conversation. That was 1970. So the conversation hasn't changed. It's become a little more in your face now. Organizations like Black Lives Matter have been around forever. They haven't gone anywhere. They've been here. Right, right. But the fact that I have to talk to a 12-year-old grandson to tell him how to act when he's out on the street, 
same conversation I had with my now 52-year-old son and I'll probably have with my great-grandson because this country just hasn't gotten a handle on that while you're taking and taking and taking from these minority groups and not giving back to them. If nothing else but respect, it should be something given back. The only thing that's wrong is if there's no action. Right. You know, we can all sit back and feel like this is the worst thing you've ever seen. Oh my God, look what they did. You walk, watch a man take four steps and fall down dead because 17 bullets hit him. And you, you think how terrible it is. In the back of your mind, you're exhaling because that doesn't happen to you. But it is yeah. happening to someone. And I think that that's the part of it. The action gene is missing. That one that says, don't buy the t-shirt, don't buy the t-shirt. That just works your conscience. You feel like you did something when you did that. Mm. Don't go to the concert. That just eases your mind. You did something good. You have some good music, but you know. But it happens when you get out there and you speak truth. When you hear it, you confront it. You let it be known that that's not the right thing to say. That's not the right thing to do. That's not what I'm all about, so don't tell me that joke. It doesn't happen until you start letting it be known to the people around you that it's not acceptable to you. And that hasn't happened yet. Right, right. You know, we ask ourselves all the time, uh, Nikki and I do, and like, well, what can we do, right? And so there's little things that our motorcycle group has done where we eat at Black-owned restaurants, you know, and Mm -hmm. we do little things like that, you know, and it is hard to kind of figure out, well, what what can we do? You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, how do we we voice it? Um, And so I'm glad that you said that. Yeah, yeah. Have a conversation. Um, You know, there's a lot of people out there who are willing to talk to you one-on-one without shouting and start a group with people who just want to talk. And wow, how does that feel? What is that like? I didn't like that. I I don't know why I felt this way about something. There's a lot of things that can happen one-on-one. The biggest challenges are tackled one-on-one, get the greatest results. Yeah, um, that's, you know, I don't know if you listened to our last podcast with Portia, but she said a lot of the same things. Uh, She was, you know, she said, you know, she said almost verbatim, really, about how, you know, you just have those conversations, but also be aware that uh, that person may not want to talk to you about it. It may be. Very true. Yeah, it's not their job to educate the you know white people on on mm-hmm. their their feelings and their oppressions and so you just have to come at it very respectfully and also with the knowledge that they may not want to spill all of their 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 experiences very true very true for a long time your your protection was in your silence and not having that voice not not wanting to share that information i share that information because that's what i do But for other people, that's very hard to talk about, to feel that someone and something out there is making you feel inferior. It's not something you want to bury your soul to so that it can be used as ammunition with you when it's time for you to do other things. You know, one one thing that Carrie and I were talking about the other day, we were getting into the car and we were talking about people that are are like 30s, 40s. And I remember in high school, 
um, if a black person would say something about like slavery, then there was always a white person who would say, well, I'm not sure why you're mad at me for that. I didn't enslave you and you weren't enslaved. And we were talking about how like that tends to be a a response even nowadays like like if 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 now I'm 42 if I have a black friend who's 42 and if they're going around talking about being slaves it, it it's not me but like let's say somebody in my racist family mm-hmm. they would say well I didn't make you a slave and you weren't a slave so why are you so worried about it about it today like if you heard that conversation like, do you have any thoughts about about that statement? Basically, white people say black people today should get over it because none of you today were were slaves. Um, yeah, I've caused a couple of heads to snap back with my response, and I didn't even hit them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there, and neither were you. It would be so different if it wasn't still going on. There's a very different thing, a, 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 a big difference between enslaving a body and enslaving a soul. When you don't allow me to progress, when you don't allow me to advance, when you don't allow me to feel a sense of dignity and decency and just being the color I am, or having my hair the way it is, or speaking like I just fell off the back of the ghetto train, if you don't allow me the things that make me me, am I not still enslaved? So you have to look at it from a whole nother side of the world. No, you weren't there. And no, you didn't have me in chains and you didn't sell me on a block. But look at human trafficking and the minorities that are involved in that. Look at how the lack of jobs are turning you to drugs and to homelessness. Look how you shed someone of their dignity. No, you're not there. You weren't there 300 and 250 years ago but you're here now and some of those same things are going on. So I think it needs to be brought out that you may not be here, but as long as this exists with one of us, it still exists. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, We're going to switch directions a little bit, not that far though. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go back to the, uh, the contentious relationship between blacks and law enforcement. I I didn't know that law enforcement was embedded in, in the, the premise that it was for gathering slaves for, for going out and hurting them back and for Mm -hmm. keeping them in line and for, you know, basically for getting your workforce together for crop season. I had no clue. You know, um, black men in the 1870s, 1880s, all the way up to almost the turn of the century, would leave walking along the tracks to go into town or to go and look for work on another black person's farm and never show up home again. And 15 years later, show up out of nowhere. Meanwhile, having lost everything. Having lost everything. No more wife, children are grown and gone. He's been seen as the bad guy who abandoned them when actually he was arrested for charges unknown, sentenced the same day and sent to work on a, sent to work on a, on a plantation or a farm. That was how de facto slavery continued. So yeah, that was a real thing. And then when you think about the expansion from the South and people moving to the West Coast, If you wanted to be a police chief and you were a deputy in one of these small towns, 
and you sent a letter and they gave you an interview and you came down to work there as their new sheriff, your perception of law enforcement is not what the West Coast perception of law enforcement is, but it will be. So that person who left that environment of stealing slaves off the street went to the West Coast with that same mentality. And over a period of time, that's what your police force looked like. Sounds like, a, were, sounds like a virus. In a, yeah, you were in a place with nothing but minorities. So it's, um, and you have this unbelievable force of all of these people being arrested, but there were no farms for them to work on, no plantations, no forced labor anywhere. So what do you do with them? You put them in jail because you can't just turn them loose because you arrested them. We ended up with the largest prison population in the country. So we do have our little guilty pieces. That's how it became so contentious. When I was growing up early on in the 1950s, I knew the police officer on the beat. He's a foot cop. He walked up and down the street. Officer George, hi. He had lollipops. They played basketball. He knew all the kids. He'd grab them by the ear and bring them home if they messed up. We knew him until 1955, and then he was gone. And then we had cops in cars who did not know the communities. But if you were in your community, you waved at the cops, you knew him, you didn't fear him, you talked to him in the store, you went through all of that. That didn't happen in our neighborhoods after the mid-1950s. As it got on a little bit more, and I was able to move into areas like the Crenshaw District over into West LA, up into the Brentwood area, you got pulled over just for being in the neighborhood. I live there, damn it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. It's like, can I even go home? <laughs> I didn't look like I fit in that area. I didn't look like I belong there. Well, and isn't that just like how so many of these things happen? You just aren't, it's, you just is. don't fit in. Something you here's don't not right. You're one of these things are not like the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it it is. It's a very, uh, very contentious situation. A lot of the um, industry around us, especially especially in California, where you have different um, different industries, the movie industry, the music industry, the um, the glamour industry, the fashion industry is all right there in Los Angeles or, or San Francisco's areas. And I don't think that they actually realize how we all fit into this, how this minority dynamic, they'll every now and then get out a new product line for black people. Half of it ain't nothing we'll wear, but okay, thanks for trying. Um, <laughs> you have to, you know, you have to acknowledge it. If I put some of that stuff in my hair, it would probably, I would have to go the other way. <laughs> I thought, you know, I used to watch the Breck commercials and wonder why I didn't have hair like that after I got through using it. It was just wrong. I think that we've been exploited in a lot of these markets. Um, I know that I, I spoke to you about rap music and how rap music is really poetry if you get past the bad words, the grunting, and some of the really ugly things you see in the videos. But if you listen, 
if you listen to the words they're telling you about a minority experience. They're telling you about hopes and aspirations. They're telling you about pain. They're telling you about living conditions, working conditions. They're telling you a lot of things, but if you can't get past all the stuff that the industry says you have to have there in order for it to be marketable, in order for it to right. sell, right? and look at it as the spoken word, you'd see something entirely different. Took me a long time to, to figure that one out too. Yeah. It's funny you were talking about like branding and all that kind of stuff. And on MTV, mm -hmm. there was this show, um, this guy, Mike, who's a comedian, and he went around and he he went to um, these these black business owners and he wanted them. Oh, oh, sorry. He went to like the head guy of the Crips and the head guy of the Bloods mm -hmm. and the Crips and the Bloods. They they do. They also do a lot of good. There's things yes, out there they that do. they do and money and stuff that they raise. Well, he went to the head of them and he said, I want you guys to launch a soda brand. And they were like, what? And he's like, I want you guys to launch a soda brand like Crip Cola. And I forgot what the blood one was. But then he took them and he took them to these soda companies, which, of course, are all white guys. And mm -hmm. the panel is all white. And he's like, present your soda. Present your soda to these people. And they were like, you know, of course, they all got shot down. But then this guy, Mike, he's got a ton of money. So he funded it. And he put like Crip Cola in the in the inner city uh, liquor stores like he was able uh -huh. to get them to buy it and it was just so crazy how many people like would walk in and you know most yeah. of us were gonna grab a Pepsi or we're gonna grab something but all these kids and all these guys walked in and they're like I gotta try that Crip Cola and it like there flew off go. yeah it flew off the shelves off but the because shelves. yeah because these white people didn't didn't even give it a shot because you know you, what you see in the media about the Crips and the Bloods and all that stuff and it was just funny that this guy had this idea to just just make something as simple as soda have have the Crips make theirs and the Bloods make theirs and they put the cans right next to each other and they they like the uh, every every uh, liquor store that these were in they like couldn't keep them couldn't keep them on the shelves and now and you, know, you know the unfortunate part of that is if you walk outside with that Crips can and you're a blood, are you taking your life in your hands? Are you now making yourself a target? And the thing about it that really makes you crazy is that the person who did that doesn't even understand the backstory to what he's doing right. and how that can erupt into something that's totally ridiculous. But that's how the rap music did it too. Do you think that I want to see my daughter or my granddaughter twerking in some, um, oh, let's say some metallic shorts that are cut up to her now on and a <laughs> blouse is missing three quarters of it? But somebody put that out there and made you think that that's what sell when it really, it degrades you. And the boy, the young boy who looks at that and think that it's okay to treat that woman like she was treated in that video and think that that's okay. And she thinks she has to look like that and put Gorilla Glue in her hair to make it lay down. You know, all of this comes back to haunt you at a later time because they grow up thinking that that's acceptable behavior. It is not. Yeah. I, um... I, you, you, in one of your writings, you talk about Marvin Gaye and this, uh, mm -hmm. this quote of his, mm -hmm. do you want to share it with us? Yeah. Believe half of what you see, some or none of what you hear. That's a line from her, heard it through the grapevine. Um, 
it was true back then and it's true now. Just look at our political situations and the alternative facts. And these are the same battles that we had a million years ago. People who are promising you they're doing the right things for you. They're working on your behalf. As long as there's a dollar sign attached to it, it's not yours. Um, one last thing, I think, before we have to end, but I, I wanted to talk about the speech, the speech that rocked me to my core, uh, that you mm -hmm. put in one of your writings, um, you would attach paper. that. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, I read it in its entirety and I mm -hmm. almost puked about five mm -hmm. different times. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I highlighted a few things and, you know, one of the things that uh, just struck me is how, again, and you even mentioned it in your writing, how relatable it is to this day and, and yes. the effects of everything. And we see it, um, you know, and how they, how the, basically the speech is how to create good working slaves, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, how do you create a slave? Uh, one that's going to put out the most, um, be the most productive and the most loyal. And it really is the entirety is how to break someone down. And they actually complete compare. He compares black people to horses mm -hmm. uh, and how you break down, you break a horse just like you would break a person um, so that they, so that you can rebuild them so that they will, they will put out the, the most work just like a horse. Um, you know, they, he assures you in the speech, he says, distrust is stronger than trust and envy stronger than adulation and respect or admiration. Uh, and that just really, that just really got me uh, mm -hmm. because we see that, right? We see distrust is stronger than trust. Uh, and we see that, um, you know, if, 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 and when people used this type of methods, these methods, which is what he's really selling, um, they could really just break, break down these poor people, um, and, and really make them distrust each other and distrust, uh, everything that's within their nature. And, um, and, and it, it's a guidebook on how you can, yes, it oh, it's awful. And, and it's just it's but an operation it's, manual. Yeah. An operation manual. Yeah. yeah. It says um, on here, and I'm just going to quote, it says both horse and I'm not going to say the word mm -hmm. N words. People are no good to the economy in the wild or natural state. Both must be broken and tied together for orderly production for orderly future. Special and particular attention must be made to the female and the youngest offspring but must be cross-bred to produce a variety and division of labor. Both must be taught to respond to a particular new language. Psychological and physical instruction of containment must be created for both. I just, uh, when I read this, it just sent goosebumps and not the good kind down my arms and my spine because it was just so, it's just so evil Yet we see the effects of that to this day and how Absolutely. it worked. Because it's still being done. If, yeah. I can break, if I can break your men by not employing them, mm -hmm. by giving them a little bit of money and make them feel good and then yank it from them and have them fall really bad in front of everybody, destroy the dignity, break right. up the family. And you see a lot of broken children right now as a result of that, which perpetuates, A, a workforce, 
or in today's times filling prisons. And B, there's a lot of women out there who are just getting on a rough deal. They're gonna work themselves to death, but that's how it's supposed to work. You're creating that future workforce, that future class of people that you can always have someone afraid of in order for you to be able to do the other things that you want. And it's really kind of funny because I learned a long time ago that the rich will keep the middle class afraid of the poor in order to perpetuate their wealth through security. Hmm. So <laughs> that one in itself is that really is so something true. you need to think about because they're not scared. And the poor people, they're not scared. They're exploited. But the middle class is always trying to find a way to remain safe against the lower class. But it's all right there in that document, which I really found fascinating um, when my instructor gave it to me in eighth grade and said, okay, you need to understand. Right. Ah. And it's like, we don't hear about this kind of stuff. No, I, you know, I'm telling you, Loretta, <laughs> and I don't know if you're surprised by this, but I didn't read about this in high school history. I didn't learn about this. I well, didn't know, you know it even existed. There are always people trying to change your history. You have to be inquisitive enough to look just a little deeper than the surface. Right, right. It's um, there. It's just, oh, speaking of which, here's a tidbit for you. Back in 1968, I believe it was, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, they had the Gang of Eight, which included... Tom Hayden, which was a, ended up being a senator, state senator for California. He was arrested for inciting a riot along with another Black Panther, Bobby Seale. And they were arrested for inciting a riot, which included marching, shouting, and general mayhem in Chicago during the convention. They both went to jail for a long time. Wow. And here and we have <laughs> just for protesting, <laughs> just for protesting, just and, for protesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked about it last week. It's it's, you know, it's this, this insurrection thing. I, I mean, we don't have much more time, but it is so insanely crazy that so many people were involved in this thing and yes. have been able to be released um, of their own recognizance or yes. they're like, you know, today's not a good day for you to come search my property. Why don't you come back in a week mm -hmm. when I can get out rid of all my stuff? Right. Even and, from but that's that that's the inequity of the of the uh, legal system. That's the inequity of justice. That's why justice is blind. You know, just peeking. And it's so crazy how some of these things we've had back to back, like you had the George Floyd protest and that you just had a lot of people walking down the street, just protesting, just holding signs, just doing candlelight visuals. And, and those people deserved rubber bullets to the face. Those people right. weren't allowed to get anywhere. Those people were pepper sprayed. Even children were pepper sprayed right in the face just so the president can take a picture in front of a church that he never attends. Yeah. You know, but then Holding you turn upside down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you turn around and a few months later, just a few months later, and you have the crowd, a crowd holding different flags. Their skin color is different. And they literally are like welcomed in, welcomed in, no pepper spray, no bullets. And yeah, people will say five people died, but three of those five died because they were old and had heart attacks and shouldn't be out there anyways. And then the girl who was told to stop, but didn't. You know, but 
but had you just simply changed the color of their skin, you would have had so much more bloodshed. Whole different story. Whole different much story. Different story. Yeah, it would have been a much different story. Um, I still hold out hope, though. I hold out hope that there's enough people who listen. There are enough people like you and Nikki who are saying this is this, this is enough. There's enough people who have have it in them to, to know and to feel not only isn't this right, this isn't exactly what our founding fathers had in mind for our government. Right. You right. know, let's take color out of it altogether. This isn't what our country was built on. Now, granted, our country was built on violence toward minority and our country was built on the exploitation of immigrant workers and different workforces. We did that as a country. That's how we got where we are today. But once you realize that that is your history and not your present, I have hope that somewhere down the line, when these old parts all die off, that we'll have people with conscience and people of belief and people of standards who are willing to stand up and say, this is not who we are. And I think when we get that, we might be on the track to getting ourselves right. I couldn't have said it better myself. And that's what we're moving to. So Loretta, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and for talking about all this. I really want to have you back. Um, and we have a lot uh, there, you know, we just sort of grazed the surface. This subject deserves a lot more time and, and input. So, um, Nikki and I both thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to talk with you and any questions that you have, I've always been here and will always be here to answer them for you. We hope you've been enjoying your episodes with Nikki. Do Good Feel Great loves bringing you those weekly episodes. And we are even more excited to announce that we'll be launching the Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends merchandise store very soon. Sign up for the podcast newsletter or follow dogood.feelgreat or Grabbing the Mic podcast on Instagram. Or you can also find us at dgfgllc.com for any updates on all podcast info and merchandise. Interested in getting any of the books recommended from the previous podcasts? Well, that's no problem. We'll be happy to link those again. But have you been wanting to maybe switch over to an audiobook? Well, now's the time to look into Audible Plus membership and start your free 30-day trial. On Audible Plus, you'll find thousands of Audible originals, audiobooks, and podcasts. If after those 30 days you decide to keep your membership, you can do so at a low price of $7.95 a month. So click on the links in the episode bio, or you can find the links at dgfgllc.com.